0: This is AutoLine This Week, the show that gets you inside the global automotive industry. Underwriting for the production of AutoLine This Week has been provided by RSM.
1: Prepare for challenges specific to your business. By working with trusted advisors who help turn obstacles into opportunities. Experience the power of being understood. RSM, Audit, Tax, and Consulting for the Middle
0: Market. And now, here's your host, John McElroy. I want to thank you all for joining us on AutoLine this week. Hey, it's the end of the year. We've got a wrap up. What were the big stories? In fact, it's more than the end of a year, it's the end of a decade. To get uh, a good insight as to what's gone on in the auto industry, I've invited three of my colleagues to join us this morning, including Joe White from Reuters, Jamie Butters from Automotive News, and David Welch from Bloomberg News. And good to have the three Great of you to be here. here. Thanks very much. Like I said, Jamie, we'll start with you. Everybody pile in because there's so much to talk about here. The end of a decade, when, when historians look back... At this decade, and especially 2019, what's going to stand out for them?
2: I mean, these are these are the best of times, right? We went from the the worst, the bankruptcies of GM and FCA back in 2009, several years of increases, record sales, several you know consecutive years above 17 million uh, profitability. Uh, it's been just an incredible decade, and yet we're ending on a pretty sour note. We've got GM suing FCA, Nissan about to furlough their, <laughs> all their people for two days. It's, uh, yeah. Despite all the, yeah. all the success, it, it, it's a, it, it doesn't feel weird, great right? anymore. It is weird because, I mean, the, just
1: on the numbers, historically, you know, global de- vehicle demand is, is good. It's not as great as it was a couple years ago, but it's, it's good. The United States market is strong. You know, average transaction prices are going up and up and up, and yet everyone's acting like it's the end of the world. I mean, you know, got the German companies, you know, talking about big job cuts over time, you, you know, GM has restructured closed plants, Ford has restructured, um, FCA uh, has got problems, uh, which are uh, plenty. Uh, and we'll and, get into that. We'll yeah. get into that. And, and obviously their ultimate thing is, hey, we're, we could emerge with Peugeot or else we don't have a future. So yeah, it's this weird kind of cognitive dissonance that's going on where the environment around on paper looks fine, but the behavior of the companies suggests that they're scared to death. Yeah.
3: yeah, that's why I think the the, the decade, if you will, and, and also the years, it's, it's the rebirth and then the existential threat of the auto industry. And I think that's why you see all these cuts and really running lean in a way that they didn't before. Because the fear is it's about cash, right? They're spending so much money on EVs and autonomous vehicles, although we can get into this later if we want to. But I I think the AV ride-hailing threat is... Way overblown. The real threat here is that people want these EVs before they can actually make real money on them. Yeah, the problem is, is that regula-
1: regulators love electric vehicles. People like SUVs. And, and, and until you electrify SUVs, which many of the companies are planning to do, you've got that, again, it's a cognitive distance thing. It's the, you know, the companies are being pressured to do EVs and spend the money, uh, huge money. Uh, but at the same time, the, you know, EV demand uh, is still small well, demand so is small, do do? and the
2: costs are too high. They are unprofitable vehicles almost across the board. And so, yeah, I think that is a big draw. You, you hit it on the head. It's, that's the, cause, the root cause of the anxiety is the tens of billions of dollars that all these big companies have to invest into electric vehicles that may or may not ever produce a return <laughs> on the thing the thing the the invested so capital. The end-of-the-decade
1: piece of this, so, t- you know, in 2010, this was a, a, this, all these issues that we're all discussing right now, were sort of a distant issue. They were not, like, within the business cycle plan that they were working on in 2010. They could still whistle by the graveyard, I think. Well, right. It was still sort of, that's a problem someday. Now, someday has arrived. And that's why I think you're seeing a lot of this kind of, uh-oh, we've
0: got to do this now. But why, if sales are strong, even though the global market is slowing down, like you say, Joe, we're, we're still, what, 90 million new vehicles yeah. a year or whatever it is in the U.S., still going strong, why all this restructuring? GM, what was it, two years ago, started cutting 14,000 employees. I think Ford went after 7,000. Now, just in the last month, the German auto industry has yeah, well, essentially said, auto- what, 50, 60,000 jobs are going to go in the next few years. What's driving all of it? Well, first of all, the, the, the European market's in a lousy shape.
3: So there's excess capacity, the there are cuts there. The Chinese market is, is in full retreat, right? Um, I mean, sales are way down. GM used to make $500 million dollars. A quarter there now it's like in terms of profit yeah and now it's like 250 million a quarter they're making 260 stuff like that so uh the, the, you know and you're seeing companies lay off there people are having to retrench here the market's still good they're just having to work harder to get it and there was excess capacity before the other thing is uh we touched on this in the green room no one wants to sell cars to poor people anymore so that means a profit rich but sales restricted US market. I mean, we're doing 17 million, if they did things the old way where we had a bunch of 19 and 17 thousand dollar compact cars and small SUVs that we were foisting on dealers with huge rebates, it would probably be an 18 and a half million market with the kind of demand that's out there. But it's not. All those people are buying used cars now. They're buying all the stuff that's off lease, and instead uh, the new cars are all averaging 35, 36 thousand dollars. It's a very profitable way to do business. Shareholders like it, but it, it, it's, you know, it, it means your volume is less. And look, if, if we've switched to expensive SUVs instead of small vehicles, you can add a ship or you can run that line faster. But that passenger car plant, has have got
2: to go. And that's yeah. why you, you see yeah. the ship. pressure on North America to deliver the profits, to make up for China's retreat, to make up for the, the high costs of tech that they're demanding in, in Europe to have predominantly hybrids and plug-in hybrids be sold and take on those losses. They need... Pickups and SUVs in the U.S. and the U.S. and, and just making a five percent margin in North America no. maybe isn't good enough. No, it You've got to, to, to keep
1: or, squeezing it to a ten percent margin. And you're right. I mean, I think that's something to watch going forward in the next few years. I mean, you know, automakers are going to are going to talk about electric vehicles, and they're going to try, you know, to continue the North American truck franchise if they have one. Again, why? You know, why does Peugeot want to merge with FCA? Well, there's a bunch of reasons, but one of them is that they get access to the Ram and Jeep franchises and the cash that's coming out of that that they that they can then use to finance whatever it is that they've got to do in Europe to comply with the CO2 rules. And um, you know, I think that you know that regulatory cliff is something that all these companies are looking at and saying, "Oh my gosh, that's a big cliff. You know, are we are we ready to to climb that?" Or and you know kind of the answer is no to some large extent. So hence, you see all this kind of strategizing going on and calling up bankers and
0: all the rest. So in affordability, I mean, that's what you guys are talking about here, becoming a huge issue for the industry, or certainly in the U.S. market, the average price of a new vehicle is what, $36,000? That was luxury car money a few years ago. It was luxury car money just a little while ago. When does it hit 40 grand? When does the average price of a new car hit 40 grand? I don't think we're that far away from it happening. Mm-hmm. With,
2: all the, with all the technology that's being required and, and demanded of cons- by consumers, right? we, I mean, who would buy anything that doesn't have adaptive cruise and lane keep assist as well as you know, emergency braking and, and all the other technology we've, we've come to know and love? Uh, so they, they keep getting more expensive. It is a better business selling high priced goods to wealthy people. Um, so, yeah, it's, uh, it's heading that way, and it's a big concern for dealers, right? They are struggling with the volume. The retail volume is not what it was last year, even though we had better than expected year this year. They're under a lot of pressure, and they're trying, having to find ways to make money outside of their core yeah, business of to, selling new vehicles. Just
1: briefly, I mean, and we have a whole other show on this, but the, the retail sector of this industry has, has resisted change for decades, and I do wonder how much longer that will be true. That they, that, you know, because the new car margins, you can look at the public dealerships, the new car margins are single digits at best. And that, that business is, whether they like it or not, is, has, is changing and, and just don't know that you're going to have the same structure. Uh, that The same structure can survive long term uh, in the next decade. Uh, that it managed to survive this decade. Mm-hmm.
0: No, that's a great point. I mean, we see automakers, and we've talked a little bit about that, cutting tens of thousands of jobs. We're seeing suppliers do the same thing. In fact, suppliers are splitting in two, spinning off their old tech, really promoting their new tech. The retail end of the business really hasn't made those kinds of changes. Not no, but, yet.
3: But, well, I, I agree with all of that. Um, the new car business actually often loses money at dealerships. The used car business, the margins are down, but think about what we're saying with affordability. If a lot of people, as a matter of fact, what, two-thirds or three-quarters of the entire vehicle market in the U.S., including used, is used, right? So there's a lot of volume to be done. One thing that's pushing this, this $17 million market, by the way, is is a lot of leasing still. So those cars come off of lease, and that's what the people who can't afford the $36,000 new car are buying, is, is that off-lease vehicle two or three years old that still has some technology and a lot of. A lot of miles left on it. So the dealers can survive on that. The real problem I think they're going to have is, is their parts and service business where they really print money is
0: going to be under pressure. As you have oh, over the air updates. Yeah, over the air update. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think Where you can just beam a radio yeah. signal into a car and make it yeah. better. It's taken. It's
1: taken the legacy automakers too long to figure out that, that that's a must. I mean, Elon Musk showed them that what six years ago, something like that, oh, or, more, or, more, a or more since 2011. Yeah, right. Tesla's so, so, so but, 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 you know, finally, the, you know, the, you're seeing the incumbents kind of getting around to that. Um, and and you know, still a year away. It, yeah but it, but it's i think it's maybe a couple years away as opposed to a, a full product cycle away so i agree with what david is saying that 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 starts to you know some of that that takes some of the uh, that you know takes some of the bread off the table for dealers and you know back to the point about you know at some point that
2: has an effect in the way that tesla uh disrupted and yet um you know isn't, continue, st- isn't steadily profitable, and so automakers are kind of warily watching what do we want to learn, what do we want to emulate, such as selling EVs that are high-priced and, uh, you know, for a good reason you know, can attract a, a real sticker price. The one to watch, I think, in retail is, is Carvana. You know, which is growing really rapidly, still not profitable, but it's because they're investing in their model. You know how that evolves over the next 10 years, and, and we'll tell. And thumbnail. A lot. What, what and, does Carvana do Car- for those? Uh, no, they no. sell pred- predominantly online, right? And that's what we're seeing more dealers try to do, whether it's with their new vehicles and especially their used. Again, the, the quality is so high, the reliability is so high. If you have a seven day, 10 day return policy, whether you're buying you know, from a, a vending machine, you know, or yeah. you know, buying online, or you, you buy it from a store, you just go in, give me my car, let me get out of here in less than an hour, and if I don't like it, I'll come back, because if I bought an Equinox, you've got 30 more Equinoxes, I'll just trade it for one of the other ones. At
3: what point does this political moat that dealers have built by you know, essentially lobbying and buying off state houses across the country, um, not in an illegal way. I don't mean um, no. it's a <laughs> what, democracy. It's all yeah. good. At, at, at what point does does that moat get crossed? It's a good question because um, you know Tesla has already set precedents. In fact, there, there's there's a very interesting opinion from the FTC on these Tesla cases that says, uh, and now this is mostly about Tesla, but they basically say that the reason franchise laws exist is to protect the cons- protect dealers from company owned stores right right but and so since tesla doesn't have any franchise dealers the ftc basically said well this is our opinion on that and so this can be used elsewhere but we're not going to come down and say that tesla has to have franchise dealers or that franchise dealers are a bad idea but we're just saying that you know tesla doesn't have franchise dealers so this is okay
0: what so, happened to that? But if, we, if you have that out there, yeah. If you, right. well, you do have it out there because the state of Michigan banned Tesla from selling any cars. In fact, it's even illegal for Tesla to service cars right. that mm-hmm. somehow made their way and, to and the state. And yet they're everywhere. And yet they're here, everywhere. in Detroit, anyway. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But anyway, they sued the state of Michigan. Tesla did, and it's that was like three years ago or something. The I thought case that is still ca-
1: wending away. As far as I know, that case is still wending its way through the courts, and and could I? I mean, I'd looked into this a while ago, so but. That could be a very important case because if Tesla w- wins and is able to use that right and is able to use that case as a wedge to kind of open up the whole question of whether right. franchise laws are legit and and right. and in what can do you know what in in what cir- circumstances they're they they can apply and what they can't that could be a really big deal.
0: Totally agree because sure. they filed in uh, federal court, mm-hmm. so I mean this has huge implications. There now are I- a lot
2: of startup brands, a lot of foreign brands that really would prefer not to have a dealer network, even though there are. Right. Arguably advantages to it as well. well.
3: But so what happens, if, if the FTC is saying the only real reason for that franchise laws should be in place is to protect small businesses from getting pounded on by a company-owned store, and the companies have no intention, they still don't really, of owning stores, it's really, and it, you know, the, the change we're talking about would be somebody like Carvana web-based selling that doesn't require... A, yeah. A Carvana, get, Carvana gets around that because they're selling used cars and, and all that. Right. Yeah. Wait, but, but the question but is,
1: can you also when, when does it get extended? to I mean. You know, when does Amazon get a dealer license, you know, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, or Walmart, which is, you know, that kind of comes and goes. But anyway, I just think it's you know, you're talking about sort of this decade, next decade. I do think that, that, that you know, the question about how long do the moats you know, continue to keep the, the barbarians away from the, the retail and side well, of the business is a
2: good, is a good one to well, ask. Well, you're right. I mean, the, the automakers don't want to own stores. They do want to own that customer relationship. And if they can sell online directly, I mean, Ford's been looking at it, sniffing around at it for like 20 years, right? Um, if they could sell directly and just let the dealers have maybe the service business, a lot of them would probably be glad to do that. But... They're not actively trying. They wanna, they're uh, working, glad to have their dealer partners to soak up inventory when they need them. The, the automakers, particularly the domestics, but I would put Toyota in, in this group,
3: too, and probably Honda. They've always kind of avoided, I wouldn't say always, I'd say since the late 90s when fights with dealers blew up in their faces. They have avoided that kind of fight with the dealers. And I think even if they did online sales, they would be happy to cut the dealer in. I'm talking about like third party. You know, when does Silicon Valley get in on the act? And get past the politics and, and really start to uh, to invade that space. It, it is ripe for disruption because a lot of people don't like the process.
0: Yeah. Okay. Let's talk about another group that could be deeply threatened in the next decade, the UAW. It's already got plenty of problems right now. Uh, Joe, what's the future for the union long-term?
1: Well, yeah. That's a, So first of all, I mean, there's, I think there's a kind of a short to medium-term dimension of that and there's a long-term dimension of that. The short to medium-term dimension to me, I mean, everybody knows, I mean, they're under investigation by the feds, uh, there was really a remarkable uh, interview given by the lead prosecutor in the case to uh, Robert Snell of the Detroit News um, where the prosecutor basically said, we have not at all taken off the table the possibility that the federal government might seek to take to control of the United Auto Workers Union. Rory Gamble, the new president, is trying very hard to avoid that, trying to show that they're going to get their act together. Um, and that's going to be a short-term disruption. The long-term disruption, which the union itself has acknowledged, um, is, and we've been talking about it all through this, that as this, as the automakers move to electrified vehicles and as they automate, as manufacturing automation continues to advance, you're going to have a situation where, you know, doesn't matter what's in the contract. These companies need fewer people in the factories or they, and, and the people there are going to have to be differently trained with different skills. And that is a big challenge to the UAW. You know, they, they, the union knows it and because they put out this great white paper on you know, electrification and sort of the threat. But they're going to have to do more than that to remain relevant. Um, and this, this scandal over corruption, I think, really f- is going to put a lot of pressure on the union and its leaders to just rethink, like, why, why is the union relevant? What is the purpose of the United Auto Workers Union? What service are they really providing to their members? Because otherwise, don't forget, Michigan's a right-to-work state. Ohio's a right-to-work state. Um, you know, these others, K- Kentucky, right, is a right-to-work. I mean, there's a lot of the states where U- UAW people work for the Detroit Three are now right-to-work states, and worst-case scenario is that members will say, you know what? Not going
0: to pay my dues I'm anymore. pay
2: my dues. It also... I mean, <laughs> among the many problems that this scandal has revealed, it, it virtually ensures that they will never organize a plant in the South. They got a little bit closer with VW and, and Nissan, and there's just no way uh, that you can make that sales pitch to a worker at Hyundai or Kia or Toyota or anywhere else, you know, and say, why am I going to pay my dues if they're just going to steal them, you know, and they're not going to really represent me? Yeah. The UAW is already not very
3: good at organizing plans period no matter where they are i don't think they organize i mean they've been organizing nurses and and, and other types of workers casino of, workers and, yeah. Yeah. Teaching yeah. A, and teaching assistants and assistant. but, you need it um, i look at this is this is a very very public scandal and investigation and people some have already gone to jail and some will and there will be more indictments that you know we had an interview with uh Matt Schneider, the U.S. Attorney, as well, and he said that the investigation is about half over, but they're getting more tips all the time, so maybe it's not half over. There's a lot more to come on this. For the union long term, I don't think they organize a plant for a generation. I mean, it's going to be really difficult for them. So, in that case, they're managing decline, and GM's a great example of this. What did GM close? GM closed three plants as part of the latest contract. Two of them were transmission plants, right? One in Warren and one in Baltimore. They're building a battery plant with an with a Korean partner, LG Chem, in Lordstown. Mary Barr did say something very interesting yesterday at the press conference. We had all sort of assumed that since they talked about the Lordstown plant with uh, the, the tentative agreement, that it was just going to be part of the— It would, not governed by the master agreement, but it would, it would just be organized. And she said, well, the workers will have to decide that. Legally, she's got to say that, though. She, but, she, she does.
1: Well, but, but it, I agree with David. That's
3: they, a significant— it's a very thing. significant thing because GM's not just doing the, yeah, we're just going to pull you in and give you another contract and everyone's automatically union. The union's got to go in there and do the hard work. And GM GM knows better than anybody since they just filed a civil suit against FCA over the union's corruption. Next topic coming up. <laughs> 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 that it's going to be, this publicity is going to make it tough on the union. So, you know, now they've got to organize this. And, and by the way, for anyone else making EVs, battery-powered vehicles, a lot of those electric motors and a lot of those batteries are imported from Asia or made by Asian companies with plants out outside of the upper Midwest that are not union. This is another threat to the union because as EVs become more popular, the whole powertrain is now being made by somebody else who doesn't have union yeah, and, plans. And, in and, and, and
1: another thing that I think was said, um, I'm not sure whether it was said or reported uh, outside of what was said, the pay rates at that plant are not going to be... You know, thirty-one no, it's, bucks it's, an hour or whatever—it's like going to be half and
0: right. that's again. I mean, anyway. Yeah. Yeah. You want to do another topic? Well, you know, David <laughs> just raised it, so keep going, brother. I mean, why is General Motors suing FCA? I know what they're saying. I, to me, it just doesn't pass the sniff test. And explain what's going um, on. So,
3: so, yeah. In case for the viewers who aren't fully aware, so there, there are obviously a lot of convictions. Uh, and sentences uh, given already to UAW leaders and FCA executives. They were basically raiding a <laughs> union training fund for millions of dollars, all kinds of gifts. And the the federal government in its, uh, or the Justice Department, rather, in its uh, public documents, is basically, you know, one of the lines was FCA wanted to keep the union negotiators fat, dumb, and happy. Schneider also told us in the interview that they haven't totally concluded that this graft that FCA negotiators enabled so that the UAWs could raid those funds from gifts, expensive vacations, and so forth. They haven't concluded that it uh, compromised the 2015 contract between FCA and the UAW, which set the pattern for Ford and GM. But that's what they're investigating. GM is suing saying It absolutely did. That's why FCA
0: set the pattern. It cost us extra money and we should be compensated for But up it. until GM said that, it was bragging to Wall Street about how well it was doing financially. In fact, it's hitting in North America with UAW work, well, the highest profit margin well, it's yeah, had so in so my that, career. So,
3: so was <laughs> it about the money? So, <laughs> so,
1: so, so I think the time, timing is important in this, too. I mean, this, this lawsuit that GM filed lands in the middle of, of uh, Fiat Chrysler's attempt to merge with Peugeot. And uh, the last thing that General Motors needs is a stronger Fiat Chrysler
3: you know, so it, you think it, they're it, trying it to them? torpedo this merger? They it also say, lands in the middle of their labor talks.
1: Well, and it lands in the middle of their labor talks, although I guess they've managed to sort that out. It seems like they're on their way. Mm-hmm. But, but it lands in the middle of this merger. So, look, General Motors says it has nothing to do with anything, um, but nonetheless it lands in the middle of the merger. And, and it's one more thing that the bankers and the lawyers attempting to work on that are going to have to figure out, well, you know, how much of a liability could there be? Do we have to reserve for it? Does it affect the valuation? It's just one more thing. And, um, you know, th- th- that kind of is what it is. So the optics of that are what they are. And uh, we'll see how that all plays out. Yeah.
2: I mean, and, and it's, it's maybe a little personal, right? I mean, it, Carlos Tavares, who's running Peugeot, took over Opel and turned it profitable after 20 years of losses under GM. That has okay. to sting.
0: And there was some bad <laughs> blood, too. Didn't he say, hey, wait a minute, you guys stiffed me with some pension bills or something like that?
2: Well, there was, uh, yeah, there was a fight it, over diesel.
1: Fight over diesel, yeah. Fight over emissions, yeah. And, and, okay. and then let's not forget, too, that the bad, there was bad blood between FCA you know, the late Sergio Marchionne was, was absolutely not— uh, well liked uh, at General Motors, um, he may, you know he now we a, see why now
3: and, that yeah.
1: he, he well made, he
0: tried to take over he wanted yeah, to force a merger
1: to take yep. over and force out Mary Barra and the manager. anyway there's just, there's plenty of competitive uh, and Ram is beating Silverado yeah which yeah. has to tick that off to, everybody at the side. they hate right that oh, but there is a legal so, piece of this I think right? no, oh, oh yeah no there no there's no question that the, the, I mean there there's no question that there's a question I guess it's you know, I mean I. Let's put it this way. Uh, I wish uh, that I were a actual manufacturing cost expert because they're going to have to hire a bunch of them to figure out, (laughs) right, how much is corruption and how much is uh, just a difference in approach to management. But we'll see. So
3: so uh, GM's case is that by setting by buying off union workers so they could set the pattern, FCA stuck GM with a more expensive labor agreement. That's what everybody tries to do. <laughs> right.
2: That's, that's the, the point of Labor Talks. That's why you go it's first. That's, part. Right. that's my what point. GM did so, this so year. There's
1: so, a what, game that everybody's played. Go ahead. There's a yeah, game but, everybody plays. Yeah. Right.
3: And, and so, which is why GM, uh, uh, you know, works very hard and often does get to go first and set Usually the patterns, right? Um, so the GM's going to have to prove, which the, even the Justice Department hasn't concluded yet, that the bribes and all the graft let Fiat Chrysler set the pattern. And, and, okay. And and the, that's and, problem number one. Yeah, go ahead. For them. And, you know, the, the, the other part is, if, I mean, yeah, the agreements do set a pattern, but they're never the same, right? Ford closed one plant, GM closed three. Ford uh, paid workers $9,000, and GM paid them $11,000 to, to ratify the agreement. GM's main argument here is that they both had the same cap on Tier 2 workers, which at the time were much cheaper, but Chrysler got to ignore it. Again, but the pattern economics, the wages for everybody were the same. Chrysler just got this side deal that let them blow off the cap. So GM's going to have to prove that this wasn't just
2: part of collective bargaining, that it really was the bribes that did that. And GM also got the side deal for, to hire more tier two workers to for the small car yeah. plant. But I mean, there, yeah. there have been exceptions I mean, made
1: all around. Yeah, I mean, you play, But also, I mean, you, you, play, you, play, you play rough when you think there's a lot at stake. And I, and I do think, and Carlos Tavares said this, um, and it was pretty memorable to me. So we're looking at 10 years of chaos in the industry going forward, and not all companies are going to make it. And so if you look at, you know, like why this kind of guns or knives stuff that's going on amongst these, all these different companies, it's because, you know, there's a thing like, you know what, 10 years from now, either co- the companies that are in the field today will not be in the field, or they will not be in the field in the same structure, size, and ownership that they are today. And 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 you know, and if you say, well, you know, we, you know, my company, we would like to not be losers in this game. And so this is, you know, this is you see the fisticuffs. I mean, and and, and the fighting because it, not everyone's going to get, not everyone's going to get through the narrow spot on the track. Well,
3: and, and the legal side of this, I think, is and quick. We're down to the yeah. End. <laughs> so Fiat Chrysler has been accused of emissions cheating, cheating on their sales numbers, and now this. I think, and, and when GM had their ignition switch problem, they hired. Lucas, you know, the attorney, to come in, do a report, do an independent audit. And FCA has not done that. I think GM's trying to send up a signal flare to the Justice Department that they've really got to make a big case out of this union investigation.
0: Man, we only scratched the the surface of the list I had of topics to talk about. What a decade. What a wrap-up to the year end. But I got to thank you guys. Joe White with Reuters. Jamie Butters with Automotive News. David Welch with Bloomberg News. Thanks, you guys. Very interesting. Good to be here.
1: Happy New Year. Merry Christmas. What a
0: fun. Underwriting for the production of AutoLine this week has been provided by RSM.
1: Prepare for challenges specific to your business by working with trusted advisors who help turn obstacles into opportunities. Experience the power of being understood. RSM. Audit, tax and consulting for the middle market.